Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And as you can see, I've uh, kind of slipped into a permanent summer schedule here in the salon. Besides uh, going on a long road trip and having a few rounds of house guests, it's been way too hot for me to get much done around here. But then I, uh, I guess I'm getting soft in my old age because uh, compared to other places I've lived, it's uh, really not all that bad. And on top of that, I've spent way too much time watching John Graham's live video feed from Burning Man. And it, uh, it looks to me that our fellow saloners who are on the playa right now must certainly be having a great time, even though it uh, may be a little hot and dusty right now. However, it's uh, cool enough here in the salon today for me to get this podcast out, and so I'd like to begin by thanking Vincent B., Guy D., and Bryce B. for their generous donations to the salon. And yes, Bryce, I uh, caught your clever message, in case you're wondering. So uh, thank you for that, and uh, thank you also, Vincent and Guy, for helping us to keep these podcasts coming your way. Well, I'm sorry if I left you hanging in my last podcast by promising to get the rest of that panel discussion out right away. Obviously, I'm letting my life get in the way of producing these podcasts once again. So rather than ramble on, let's get right into today's program. As you know, we were listening to a panel discussion that took place at a conference sometime in 1981 or 1982 at the University of California at Santa Barbara. The panel was hosted by Timothy Leary, and so far we have heard from Frank Barron, Andrew Weil, Walter Houston Clark, and Paul Krasner. Now we are going to hear from the one and only Robert Anton Wilson, who will be followed briefly by Dr. John Lilly. So uh, let's join them now. Uh, one of the interesting things about the placebo effect, which was uh, discussed by uh, Dr. Weil, is uh, uh, one of the interesting. Can you hear me now? Uh, one of the interesting things about the placebo effect is a recent study showed doctors are most likely to give people to placebo, to give placebos to. You see, short-term memory loss. <laughs> are most likely to give placebos to people who will not uh, profit by them and least likely to give placebos to people who will profit by them. Uh, th this study uh, was done in a, a large hospital, and uh, it turned out that there are two kinds of patients, basically. There are the ones who want to get well, and there are ones who want to stay sick a while longer because they managed to avoid certain problems that they'd have to confront if they got the hell out of the hospital. Uh, and uh, doctors uh, give placebos to the ones who would rather stay sick. And they ignore the placebos just like they ignore any other type of therapy because it doesn't fit into their game plan. Uh, the people who will respond best to placebos are the ones who want to get well. But doctors don't give them placebos because they don't, because uh, doctors give placebos to people to punish them, it turns out. It's the doctor's way of saying, I'm smarter than you, schmuck. I know you're faking it. So they, that's why they give them placebos. So they never give placebos to the people who take advantage of them. Goethe said uh, the difference between a beautiful woman and a pretty woman is that a beautiful woman has a touch of the bizarre. And uh, that, that, has, that has to do with creativity. Creativity has a touch of the bizarre. Um, a creativity is the unusual combination. It's what you don't expect. Like roses are red, violets are blue. You think this will rhyme, but it ain't gonna. <laughs> that, that is a moderate feat of creativity by Steve Allen. All, all creativity basically takes that form, which is why Goethe saw that beauty had a quality of the bizarre. And yet when Goethe heard Beethoven's Fifth Symphony, he said, this is merely stupendous. Uh, it was merely stupendous because it was the combinations were too unusual, too bizarre. It took uh, 50 years for Europe to begin to understand that. It's taken about 60 years for most of the literary world to understand James Joyce's Ulysses. At first, that was merely bizarre and grandiose. The, uh, 
The interesting thing about intelligence increase is that it is part of an evolutionary process that can actually be seen on graphs. Uh, Count Korzybski started making graphs of that sort back in the 20s. A psychologist named Bontrager at the University of Pennsylvania has hundreds of them. Bucky Fuller has been making graphs of this type since 1928. One of the most interesting ones is the one I call the jumping Jesus phenomenon. I wrote an article about this recently for a magazine called Futurific, and they wouldn't print it because they said it might offend their Christian readers. And uh, I, I thought that was kind of odd because I didn't mean to be offensive. I, I just thought I'd give Jesus some kind of uh, some of the fame that Ohm and Faraday, who had the Farad named after him, and Volta, who had the Volt named after him. And eventually we're going to have a unit like a Deliri that's uh, bound to come. And I, I thought I'd do Jesus a favor by making him a unit. And uh, I got this from uh, Georges Andela, a French economist who did a study for the uh, Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development, in which he tried to estimate the number of facts known each year since the beginning of recorded history. He didn't try to measure wisdom because that's a little more subtle. Facts you can count and estimate using modern information theory and various statistical devices. You can get a pretty good approximation. He put his uh, the number of facts each year on a graph to see what the shape of the graph was like. And, of course, the son of a bitch was like a skyrocket. Um, he took, uh, for instance, the uh, number of uh, known facts at the time of the birth of Christ as one unit to keep the graph simple. And then he looked how long it took for this to double to get twice as many facts. And so I call the beginning of his graph one Jesus, since it dates from 1 AD, uh, the alleged birth of the late uh, Redeemer. Uh, actually, he was born in 4 BC, but that's a complicated historical digression we needn't go into if we didn't have chromosome damage. The, uh, it took until 1500 to get two Jesus. Uh, for the t total number of facts to uh, double. By 1500, we had two Jesus in the human larder. And by 1500, we had the Renaissance going full blast. And the next doubling occurred by 1750, which was only 250 years. It took uh, 1500 years to go from one to two units, uh, two Jesus, and 250 years to go from two Jesus to four Jesus. Uh, we wound up with eight Jesus in 1900, which was only 150 years. Now, in mechanical engineering, uh, which I once started out to get involved in uh, before I decided I uh, would rather make a living without working and became a writer. You're resting it down here. Get it. Okay. okay Why don't you stand up? Roses are red, ink is black, do me a favor, sit on attack. That's a variation on the beginning of this. Uh, we, we, were up to, uh, we were up to 1750, I believe. The, the next uh, doubling got us up to eight Jesus, and that was by 1900. The next doubling got us up to 16 Jesus by 1950. The next doubling got us up to 32 Jesus by uh, 1960. You notice the intervals are getting shorter and the doubling is moving faster. Uh, by 1960, we had the World Round Youth Revolution beginning, which everybody's been trying to put a cap on ever since because nobody knows where it's leading. Uh, by 1967, we had the next doubling to 32 Jesus, and by 1973, we had the next doubling to 64 Jesus. Uh, at which point uh, Georges Andela completed his study. Yes, I'll do my uh, since 1973, I haven't found any statistics of this sort, but there can be little doubt that the doubling is continuing. In mechanical engineering, you rate a machine in revolutions per second. If you are looking at human history in the, over a long geological span, you'd have to start out rating it in revolutions per millennium. And you might say it was going along at a quarter of a revolution per millennium for quite a long time until historical times began and then it was going in one revolution per millennium. By the time we reach uh, 1500, and this uh, jumping Jesus phenomenon is really moving along, you can start measuring human affairs in revolutions per century. 
Well, in the 20th century, uh, since it doubled between the total number of known scientific facts doubled between 1900 and 1950, we can obviously measure it in revolutions per century and see we reach two revolutions per century by 1950. But it's been doubling faster since then, so now we're going to have to measure it in revolutions per decade. I think uh, Tim, uh, in his uh, mystical way, suggests that life extension research is arriving at the same time as space migration because the DNA knows that with life extension we're going to have to get the hell off one planet. I I think uh, mind-altering drugs of all sorts, not just psychedelics, but every dimension of mind change drug, tranquilizers, antipsychotic drugs, uh, energizers, the whole... The whole field that has been opening up since the 60s and is opening up faster all the time is an evolutionary necessity that had to appear at this point. Uh, Since things are moving faster and faster, we cannot afford the amount of stupidity that we used to be able to tolerate. Uh, The phenomenon that Tim was talking about, that Kuhn's book is about the structure of scientific revolutions, basically what it comes down to is that with few exceptions, few strange mutants, older scientists uh, never accept a new paradigm. The way the new paradigm gets accepted is the old ones die off and the younger scientists get into the more important positions at the universities and then the new paradigm is gradually accepted. Now, with longevity coming along, that's not going to be happening anymore. As a matter of fact, uh, Rosenfeld in his book, Pro Longevity, says whenever he talks about longevity uh, in scientific groups, there's always somebody who says, my God, if the head of the department never dies, progress will come to an end. Uh, so we need, we, need, we need something to replace death as a, uh, an intelligence increaser. Uh, generally, the only way that intelligence could grow is to get rid of the, uh, the people who haven't been, uh, taken any new imprints since adolescence, as Tim would say. Uh, we need ways uh, for people to change their brains more rapidly, and we're suddenly getting this astonishing technology is appearing all around us which is not just chemical, but mechanical too, biofeedback and all sorts of uh, ancient shamanic techniques are being rediscovered. Uh, there are yoga classes everywhere you go. We are learning how to take control of our brains and how to uh, deal with the fact that we're living with more and more rapid change all the time. Because, uh, for instance, to get back to longevity, In 1750, when human knowledge had just gone through a doubling in a period of 250 years, everything was shaking loose in Europe. And so we find, I'm researching that period right now for a novel I'm working on, we find that all sorts of radical ideas were popping up everywhere that had never been thought of before. And if you start examining them, you find what we think of as the great discoveries of the 19th century were already being suggested, such as evolution appears in Buffon's book on natural science. And you actually find 200 years before Dr. Paul Siegel, who has devoted 20 years to longevity research and is in the audience here somewhere, I think, uh, 200 years before Dr. Siegel, 200 years before Alan Harrington, who first wrote a book on the subject, we find in the 1770s the mathematician Condorcet in France was saying science will eventually produce physical immortality. And we find Benjamin Franklin saying the same thing in this country. That was because the acceleration was beginning to unleash a lot of uh, really wild, creative thought, the bizarre type of beauty. I always think of thought in terms of bizarre beauty, in terms of Goethe's metaphor. This whole process... What? Yes, I try to remember. This whole process has has, uh, an interesting vector on it, considered... uh, geographically, it has been moving steadily westward and mildly northward throughout history. Uh, The first Bronze Age implements are found around Thailand and Cambodia, which shows that the Bronze Age began in the Far East, not in the Middle East, as we always used to think. It spread upward to China and then into India. Then it hit the Middle East, where we first began to find the records of what we consider civilization. Then it kept moving. And if you study uh, the records of uh, this type of migration, you find the the same general phenomenon. What they had in Greece in the 4th century B.C. uh, is what they had in Rome in the 1st century A.D. It's what they had in Italy in 1500 A.D. when the jumping Jesus thing had doubled. It's what they had in England in 1750 when the jumping Jesus thing had quadrupled and moved westward again and north. It's what we had in the east coast of this country, New York and Boston, between 1800 and 1900, when the 
whole thing had moved there, and it's what we've got in California now. The formula is granola, fruits, nuts, and flakes. Uh, That's what you'll find in uh, Athens, 4th century B.C. It's what you'll find in Renaissance Italy. It's what you'll find in the East Coast around 1900. It's what we've got here now. It's the people who are... Yeah, I'm very careful about not saying which of the groups I belong to. That's for the audience to decide. Uh, The the bizarre, the unthinkable, is where creativity comes from. Like uh, my favorite chess player, Ayekin, one of his games, he checkmates with a pawn. Everybody, especially his opponent, was looking, what can he do with the queen? What can he do with those knights? What kind of evil scheme lies behind that hidden bishop? And the son of a bitch comes in with a pawn and checkmates. Nobody could think of a thing like that but a yekin. Um, Beethoven goes from the third movement to the fourth movement in the fifth symphony without the usual pause, which nobody expected. And part of the reason Goethe said it's merely grandiose because it didn't sound like anything he ever heard before, but it works. A great poem is always a profound shock to the nervous system, and the immediate reaction is, what kind of gibberish is this? If uh, if you were to walk through a collection of artworks, paintings, uh, chamber uh, quartets playing, uh, poets declaiming their works, sculptors exhibiting, uh, scientists talking about their latest theories, uh, philosophers expounding on their latest meditations, and if it all made sense to you, you could be absolutely sure they were all third-rate schmucks. Uh, but if you walked into a place and everybody seemed nuts to you, uh, like Paris in the 1920s with Joyce and Pound and Gertrude Stein and Picasso and Brancusi and stuff, they all seemed nuts and seemed to be doing something that made no sense. Creativity was going on, because creativity is the unusual combination. And the unusual combination is negative entropy. And that is not a metaphor. Claude Shannon demonstrated that in a book called The Mathematical Theory of Communication in 1948. And it's a crying shame that most social scientists don't know enough mathematics to understand it yet. But uh, the unusual combination uh, uh, produces a higher level of coherence. And that's what information is. Bucky Fuller says human beings are local problem solvers. The reason we are local problem solvers is because we can make unusual combinations, which creates a higher level of coherence. And that's why Prigogine is right. That's what Prigogine got the Nobel Prize for his work on dissipative structures. And one of his discoveries is the more complex a structure is, the more unstable it is, the more it's got this bizarre beauty I've been discussing, like an anthive, a termite hill, a human city. And uh, the more complex it is, the more the structure is unstable and likely to dissipate. Only what Prigogine discovered is contrary to the second law of thermodynamics, which only applies to closed systems. And this kind of evolving open system, it is going to dissipate into a higher level of coherence. And the jumping Jesus phenomenon, having brought us to the point where knowledge has doubled several times since 1960 and is in the process of doubling again and will have completed doubling probably in the next year and double two times before we reach 1990. In that process, we are dissipating, collapsing out of all the structures we know, not into chaos, not into the collapse of civilization, but into a higher level of coherence. And that's what my acid trips have taught me with a little help from mathematics. Well, uh, I thought you were all magnificent. <laughs> and Frank Barron, yeah. There are, there are literally dozens and dozens of people in this room who should and will be up here, I hope, before we leave. I'd like to, at this moment, pay a word of tribute to two men who had a tremendous effect on my life when they came to Harvard University in, uh, I think, 1960, and I was talking about Harvard Square. That was um, (laughs) my identity picture at the time. Uh, Two men who breathed into Harvard and really fired us up and taught us much about life and poetry and courage. Uh, I'm talking about Peter Orlovsky and Allen Ginsberg. Allen's not here today, but Peter is here. I'd like to uh, recognize. Thank you, Peter. (laughs) And send a message to Allen Ginsberg through Peter. We love you, Alan. Huh? One of the uh, 
I think uh, fair to say that probably the, the mind uh, which has most influence on my own thinking, I, I'm not sure that's a tribute, or the person who's contributed most to my delinquency intellectually, I think is also in the room. He's certainly, uh, without any question, one of the great pioneer uh, scientists of this time or any time, one of the most courageous explorers in places where no one ever been before, sending back signals which have changed all of us in this room. Uh, John Lilly, where are you? John Lilly. John Lilly. Come up, John. John, please come up. How do you answer that one? <laughs> well, it sure is great to be back again after two years. I was here in the LSD in the future two years ago and heard very similar thoughts. There seems to have been a little progress since then. There seems to be more optimism about psychedelics. They seem to be treated now with more rationality, as I was hoping they would be back in the 60s, but they couldn't be then. We were too ignorant. I've managed to maintain a certain degree of rationality in the 60s, but I could only do it by staying away from Tim (laughs) Metzner (laughs) and Alpert. (laughs) So I hung out in the Virgin Islands in an isolation tank with my Sandoz, well, they lapped it up <coughs> in Massachusetts and Millbrook. <laughs> so having that degree of distance and maintaining it and being frightened of coming back into the United States under any conditions which had any publicity to them, I managed to write a book, get it published surreptitiously, and distributed through the Whole Earth Catalog called Programming and Metaprogramming in the Human Biocomputer. I followed that up in 1972. That was written in 1967, actually. Published again in 72. And then in 72, the Center of the Cyclone was published. And we got kind of launched... It was reviewed in the New York Times book review and said it was some sort of a cult book. (laughs) I never knew anything about the cult uh, or the occult having to do with all this. But apparently the book is still around. Bantam is still publishing it. And Bantam is also coming out this summer with The Scientist, which is the follow-up of the other two books. And I recommend them highly and hope that you can read them under all sorts of conditions, including in an isolation tank. Thank you. Tony is not with us in uh, uh, physical carnality, but she's with us in spirit. We send a message through John to Tony, right? Right. Uh, who's in charge of uh, timing and placing? How, how are we doing? Yeah. Is that? Yeah. Shall we cut it here? Or? Uh, um, I, I feel that uh, it's uh, appropriately controversial and <laughs> mischievous to say that... Um, uh, the asset of the 1980s uh, uh, are going to be the computers, and the uh, computer heads <laughs> are going to break a lot of chromosomes. <laughs> we have, I'm sure we have a lot of uh, totally um, brain-electrified uh, computer people in this room. I know we have Francis Jeffrey. Francis, where are you? Would you come up for a second and uh, say some outrageous things? <laughs> Thank you.
Hi. Uh, something outrageous uh, is that the DNA, of which we have several uh, trillion copies in every cell in our body, um, has an information content which is way beyond any man-made computer at the present time. But essentially, the DNA is a computer, and it's an enormous uh, computer tape. It's both a memory, a huge tape with information on it, and a computer for working on itself. And the DNA has now brought us to the point where it's our job to begin participating actively in its future evolution, which is the same as our future evolution. Um, I have no more outrageous things to say. <laughs> he does, really, but we'll let him go. Thank you, Francis. <laughs> about ketamine. <laughs> Read The Scientist by one of our great scientists, John Lilly. Uh, that's, uh, I wouldn't say the final word, but it's the ultimate word. <laughs> yes. Where's Ram Dass? Um, well, I'm glad to report that um, about two weeks ago at midnight, my wife Barbara and I were uh, in bed. The telephone rang, and this uh, voice, uh, mellow voice, said, This is uh, Richard Alpert. Um, I'm in town and like to come over. So Richard Albert came over the following day at noon and he hung around for about eight hours in our patio. And uh, <laughs> he's just the greatest company there is around. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, if, you, uh, if you ever have a chance to uh, spend a day or a week or a month uh, with Baba Ramdas, he calls himself both Baba Ramdas and Richard Albert. The wonderful thing about... Um, Richard Doss or <laughs> Bob Alpert is he's changing I don't think that uh, I said John Lilly's one of the most courageous scientists of all time um, Richard's not basically a scientist he's a, a philosopher and a stand-up <laughs> philosopher comic <laughs> yes right um, whatever wonderful title we want to give him uh, uh, I, there are very few people in history that have been able to put themselves right out there absorb uh, from uh, anyone that uh, has something to teach um, uh, to change uh, his life, uh, to keep evolving, mutating, growing. My goodness, uh, he's just begun to just begun this process. Where he'll go in the next uh, 20 or 30 or 50 years is no telling. But he's uh, livelier than ever. He's changing rapidly. Uh, he's laughing all the time. He's um, moving around the world like some uh, geosynchronous satellite. He's likely to pop up any place. Uh, he's really got it down. You see, you know, say. Um, where do you live, Richard? He said, here now. <laughs> you don't have to pay rent on that. <laughs> and the landlord's not going to evict you. <laughs> yeah, he's doing great, and we had a wonderful time. He's got a new guru. Um, one of them, as you know, one of Richard's... Um, Wonderful techniques is to simply uh, give, give himself over for uh, as long as it's mutually um, beneficial to anyone that uh, he respects and has something to um, to tell him. Um, and he's really, you know, what a wonderful track record he's got of that. Uh, anyway, he's, um, his guru, Neem Curly Baba, died... Uh, 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 several years ago, and then he had a, um, a tantric guru in New York, uh, whom he said uh, really taught him a lot. <laughs> and um, <coughs> he's now got a, uh, a guru, or the guru is not the right word, uh, a telephone connection, uh, you know, <laughs> uh, to someone named Emmanuel. Emmanuel, you contact, is a spirit that is, passes on signals through a housewife in the Bronx. Isn't that fantastic? Because <laughs> Richard never has to take the responsibility for anything he says. <laughs> Which is a very, very uh, graceful and dignified uh, thing to do. <laughs> anyway, he's doing great. We had a wonderful time. And the next time you see him, he'll delight you as well. Uh, Michael Horowitz, would you, uh, would you stand up, Michael? Um, uh, there's one of the great figures of our times. Uh, 
For those of you, come up for a minute and say a few words, would you? Yeah. For those of you who don't know who Michael is, uh, he uh, is, uh, along with uh, Michael Aldrich, uh, the, I don't know, the founder and the leading light with the uh, Fitzhugh Memorial Ludlow Library, which is the world's greatest collection of curiosities, artifacts, rare books, and popular books uh, on dope. Uh, he's one of the great archivists of our time. He's one of the great writers of our time. Tell us all about it. One of the things about having a dope library is uh, you do a lot of time traveling. Uh, <laughs> you do a lot of time traveling when you're uh, around books, especially books that uh, describe uh, altered states. Of um, Listen yeah. to it coming, so you've got to have right. it blasting in your ear from there. And you've got to have to face right like that. All right. You get your ear attached to that so All you right. know when you're loud enough. All right. <laughs> Rock and roll. Uh, oh, anyway, for about 11 years now, uh, myself and Michael Aldrich, Robert Barkin, colleagues and friends have donated and built a fantastic library. Uh, and we've been time traveling in it by ourselves mostly, and a few people know about it. And we'd like to uh, make it a, this magic carpet ride available into the consciousness of uh, Fitzhugh Ludlow and Charles Baudelaire and... Um, Ooh, who, who, you know, just Eve and Sappho and, um, you know, just every, uh, the, the mind expanders of every time in history um, are available. And uh, through the uh, writings of, um, you know, in the books we've gotten together. And these books you can't find, really. Uh, or if you can, you know, the, uh, you have to kind of read between the lines. And uh, so, actually, this is, I mean, I could, this could be 1842. I think this could be Hashish Club in Paris or, uh, you know, the Humphrey Davies uh, Nitrous Oxide Institute, and, which was just like Harvard in the psychedelic research project in uh, 1962. was, you know, previewed in 1800 in Bristol, England, uh, when the uh, leading uh, writers, artists, intellectuals were, came to try laughing gas. Uh, this 20-year-old scientist had just discovered the mental effects of and um, well, these are some of the lights, and we also republish, uh, reprint and republish some of these books. And, uh, and sometimes people buy them and uh, they go into second printing or something like that. Um, right now, the local library uh, is looking for a home. So uh, it's a big library, and uh, it needs a certain amount of security and care and so on. But um, we, there's a flyer, uh, a newsletter. Uh, which you just produced, that it tells the story of the Ludlow Library. I mean, we started in 1970, and um, so uh, we've lasted out a decade, and we're st- the library's been growing, and uh, so have we, and uh, we'd like to uh, have it in a place where it could be available to more people who want to, who want to research and read about other people's trips throughout history. And it's incredible how many trips have been reported by people you wouldn't believe. Uh, and, uh, well, you know, so, um, anyway, pick up the flyer and uh, think about it. And um, uh, thanks, Tim, for giving me a chance to talk about the Little Library. Thank you, Michael. There is in the room another great hero of our times. Uh, <laughs> I know, we got an all-star cast here today, haven't we? <laughs> and so many that aren't here that are with us in spirit. Alan Watts, huh? Uh, Aldous Huxley, and Woo. Humphrey Osmond, yeah. <laughs> and all the great musicians and poets and writers. <laughs> you know, uh, we've all been worried about uh, uh, a great musical phenomena of the 60s that has been kind of falling apart recently. Well, there's some hope that we can get uh, Bob Dylan together again. <laughs> One of a, there is an all-star in the room, I hope. Uh, he first came to the attention of our intelligence agency as a uh, Annapolis graduate and as a, a naval officer. And we felt, well, anyone that's getting high altitude in the Navy could be of use to us. Uh, he's been uh, one of our great psychedelic, philosophic, Gnostic poets for the last 15 years. Walt Snyder, where are you? Are you here, Walter? Walt, come on up, huh? He has just finished a book and is working on another. Maybe he'll say something about that and anything else you want to talk about. Well, thank you, Tim. 
I've written a book on sacred mountains, and I'm presently working on ancient Egypt. Is it coming through? See, no, no. Uh, you gotta, you gotta have that blasting in your ear. No, that, the whistle, yeah. the whistle. Yeah, no, 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 not even that. The sound. The sound. You're a rock and roll star. Woo. You gotta feel it. Okay. Come out from there, and you're gonna vibrate. You will vibrate too. Let's hear it for ancient Egypt. <laughs> now, what I've been doing with ancient Egypt essentially is is a uh, study of pre-dynastic Egypt, going up through the Pyramid Age. And the oldest books in the world are, in fact, the pyramid texts, which were written in the engraved in the lower uh, walls of the last pyramids built. And in these, the latest Egyptologists of the past hundred years, all of whom are, <clears throat> excuse me, uh, well, they're, they're very much taken up with social Darwinism and 19th century ideas of what human consciousness is, but the Egyptians themselves never had this problem. And in the uh, pyramid texts, they make pretty clear that what they're talking about is the transmission, transmission of human consciousness throughout the galaxy, much what certainly you've been writing about, and uh, what others have, uh, I think, done also. The pyramids themselves, however, are primarily lineal descendants of sacred mountains, which go back even into prehistoric times, and yet at that time, human consciousness was by no means prehistoric. Uh, that's about all I have with Tim. What is the name of your book about yeah, it's a book called Sky Cloud Mountain, which is about a ranch uh, in Palm Springs where many of us hung out for many years during our guerrilla period and uh, look for it uh, in the future. Well, uh, what more is there to say? We could go on forever, but I think the appropriate moment has come for me to uh, thank Robert Anton Wilson and Paul and uh, Walter and uh, Andrew and uh, Frank and uh, John Lilly and everyone else and all of you. Uh, we're getting stronger. We're going to get moving again. The time has come. Uh, we've been laid back. We've been cocooning. It was good to do that. We had to kind of uh, cool out a little bit, <laughs> let the smoke uh, die down a little bit. Uh, in the next 10 years, we're going to get things moving faster and higher than ever before. We're going to make the 60s look like a Girl Scout tea party. Let's go! <laughs> Well, the good Dr. Leary sure was charged up at the end of that conference, wasn't he? Unfortunately, the uh, 90s didn't turn out as radical as he hoped. But unless I miss my guess, uh, things are finally getting to the point we hoped we'd be reaching over 20 years ago. I guess uh, we're just a little slow. And as you now know, the second tape in this series wasn't an hour long, like the first part that we heard in the last podcast. So I've decided to fill in with another short bit from the Leary Archive that may fit in quite well here. The tape was labeled Alaron, that's A-L-A-R-O-N, Alaron CTR, so I guess it's the Alaron Center, on August 7th, 1982. But what caught my attention with the little note that was attached to it is that it's a short segment of Timothy talking about Dr. John Lilly. Now, my only word of caution on listening to this would be to be extremely cautious about what he says about ketamine. On many occasions, I've heard Ann and Sasha Shulgin warn about the possibility of getting habituated to it, although uh, I personally have to admit that after having experienced it a few times, I never had an urge to even try it again, uh, mainly because I wasn't learning anything new each time I used it after the first time. But uh, I have several friends who have uh, really gone off the deep end on it a few times. So for what it's worth, uh, I am definitely not advocating the use of ketamine. And with that little proviso, let's uh, now hear what Dr. Leary had to say about Dr. Lilly on the 7th of August in 1982. And uh, by the way, where were you on that day? Uh, uh uh, we've talked off and on about uh, this uh, meta-biological level, or out-of-the-body level, and uh, um, I was having a discussion with Francis Jeffrey at lunch about John Lilly, who figures here. See, John Lilly, by the way, is one of the first scientists uh, to use LSD. He's, he's the first scientist that I know of to really come out with the notion of the brain as a biocomputer. So at Circus Six... 
He's also, at Circuit 7, more than any scientist, perhaps who ever lived, has stressed interspecies communication, because that's genetic, you know? And he's trying to talk to the dolphins, and he's saying, listen to the whales. Now, that's straight-out DNA talk, because DNA wants that. So he's taking a position which is above the human, you know, position. He's up there, and he's saying, well, humans should meet Mr. Dolphin, you know? He's had encouraged love affairs and sexual affairs between dolphins and human beings. I mean, that is a DNA point of view as opposed to a species chauvinism. And now John, Lil- John Lilly turns out he's ahead of us when we get to these out-of-the-body experiences with ketamine. is definitely a drug that is beyond life. When you take ketamine, and I'm not advocating ketamine. It's a, it's a very complicated philosophic, and it's a death experience. Now, if you're afraid of death, that's terrible, but it's, it's, a, it's a non-terminal death experience. And uh, that's the concept. Matter of fact, death is a wonderful thing as long as you, you know, you don't go overboard on it, right? Um, when you take ketamine, you park your body. And the wonderful thing about ketamine is the best anesthetic. And you talk to any vet or talk to any uh, anesthesiologist, he'll tell you, my God, it's the ideal anesthetic because the body's just parked there. The heart's beating and the respiration. You don't have to worry, you know, with heroin or barbiturates, you have to worry about, you know, uh, the heart and the lungs and all that. Ketamine it is, just chugs along and idling and, you know, uh, while, while you're gone. <laughs> and cut it up. You don't care. I mean, <laughs> you're, off in the, you're off in the video arcade <laughs> while they're banging out the fenders of your car, you know, and cutting you up. <laughs> it doesn't even belong to me. So, you know, that was a nice car when it lasted, but... Uh, um, um, so we're talking about how you, uh, what, what does Lily do? Because Lily, see, Lily's getting farther and farther removed from life and from human uh, communication. And the reason for that, I think this is a speculation, but he's imprinting his own metabiological Experiences. He says in his books, he says in The Scientist, and he says in his new book he's got coming out called From Here to Alternity, you know, it's not addiction. I don't take this drug over and over again because, you know, I have to have it or I'll bite my, you know, rob uh, little old ladies to get it. It's simply that he's imprinted, uh, it's simply more interesting at these higher levels, and he's willing to come down as long as we can make it interesting enough for him here, uh, you know, and if he, yeah, uh, but if he were here today, he'd be, he'd go, there was a wonder, we had a wonderful experience at Esalen. I was giving a seminar there, and John Lilly came into the, the, uh, my seminar the first night I was there, and was he loaded. <laughs> he sat down, and uh, he started talking about ketamine and talking about this book, and for was it about an hour and a half, he talked, he was totally stoned out in ketamine. He talked absolutely with the greatest clarity and the greatest precision. That was the time he came out with this line about... Uh, shoot up or shut up. Uh, and then uh, Francis felt that he was stimulated enough by this room full of quite intelligent people who were interested in what he had to say that he was able to do this and so forth. But uh, the problem, in a sense, if you want to call it a problem, with, with Lily or with any of these adventurer, uh, adventurers is that you start imprinting and re-imprinting this new reality, and it gets to be more interesting than coming down here to playing the game of, you know, Sausalito and Highway 101, and uh, you know, and getting the act together for tomorrow. So, uh, uh, well, that's um, we've zapped through <laughs> 24 stages, 100 billion neurons, <laughs> becoming microcomputers. Uh, we've had a wonderful doom-boom uh, confrontation. I thank you for that because uh, we had to face that issue. And um, we have married East and West. <laughs> we've married Richard Alpert and Baba Ram Dass. <laughs> we've appointed John Lilly, the uh, hero of our times. I- I've had a wonderful time today. I really thank you for coming, and uh, it's been a very enjoyable day. We'll meet again. Well, I hope you enjoyed that little side trip with me, and uh, to continue along a little further on our historical journey of the last century, I'm going to uh, play a short but uh, kind of fascinating little clip that came from another tape that is labeled Joyful Wisdom Program, and uh, it's from a very old radio show that uh, was hosted by Gabriel Wisdom, who uh, I think is probably the same guy who's now the uh, money manager guru on National Propaganda Radio. 
But uh, before he took his turn to the right, he was uh, interviewing people like Commander Cody, Dizzy Gillespie, and, of course, our old friend, Dr. Timothy Leary. Now, uh, this short talk by Timothy doesn't really bring us anything new other than uh, his opinion on Rolling Stone moving east. But at the end of it, uh, Gabriel Wisdom plays a song by a German band with Timothy Leary singing vocals. And I don't think there are many recordings of Dr. Leary singing. At least, uh, I've never heard another one. And so I thought maybe uh, we should preserve it here. And uh, as to the quality of the song, (laughs) well, I'll leave that up to you to decide when you hear it in just a few minutes. And now, here's Timothy Leary. Well, Gabriel, it's a pleasure to return with my quarterly... Uh, report. In the last three months, I've been acting as an intelligence agent, uh, sorting out all the information, attempting to get all the maps I can of uh, what's happening and what's going to happen. And uh, in my role as uh, intelligence agent, uh, I'm going to uh, bring my uh, employers, that is the radio audience, up to date. The first thing that's happening is a continuation of the uh, era of good feeling. The country is definitely feeling well. In particular, the Sun Belt, that is the southwest of this country, is feeling better and better as more and more intelligent Americans are moving into the Sun Belt. That's one of the most astonishing migrations in human history, Gabriel. In the last 15 years, without any bloodshed or even any visible notice, there's been a tremendous brain drain. The smartest people in the Northeast have left and come down to the uh, South and the Southwest, and particularly uh, California, Arizona. And the dumb people in the Sun Belt have all gone to Washington, New York to seek their fortunes there. People like Jan Wenner of Rolling Stone. <laughs> you know, he, he's just plain dumb. Uh, he, he's got a track record now. Everything he touches is uh, is turning wrong simply because he's betting on the past. He backed Bella Abzug to run for mayor of New York. Uh, he backed Bob Dylan in his new um, uh, movie, Bomb After Bomb, because uh, Jan Wenner is betting on the past. And his, he's moved Rolling Stone magazine. Uh, headquarters to New York simply because uh, he's uh, <laughs> he's working exactly in the wrong direction. Now there's some people still going around crying doom, the doomsday sayers, the uh, people who uh, are warning of and hoping for some sort of apocalyptic uh, crisis, an earthquake, uh, an end to everything. Now when anyone lays that trip on you, just look at them and smile and say, listen. The world is coming to an end. You've come to an end of your vision. It's you who feel that uh, your end is at hand. But uh, the uh, the evolutionary picture is moving along beautifully. And all you have to do is get that evolutionary perspective and see how the waves of uh, increased intelligence are happening and surf them. And uh, you'll be sharing in the, uh, the really good things that are happening. Coming up on the Joyful Wisdom program, a rare German export album called 7-Up, featuring Timothy Leary with electronic music group Ashra Temple. Timothy sings on an upcoming track. Stay tuned. This rare recording, done in Germany in 1972, Timothy Leary on vocals with electronic group Ashra Temple. The album's called 7-Up.
you uh, are given a, a, a body of facts that have been predigested and interpreted for you, and uh, the role of uh, an original, uh, innovative thinker under that system is not as easy as it once was. That would be my judgment. Would you believe that Norman Vincent Peale likes the song we've just heard? You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time. Well, what can I say after that, huh? <laughs> I guess that uh, because that soundbite came out of the Timothy Leary archive and is from a program that he obviously had a part in, then I uh, guess I should accept the fact that it really was Tim Leary singing there. And uh, who am I to doubt the wisdom of Gabriel, huh? Anyway, uh, that was uh, what passed for psychedelic entertainment in the 1970s. So even though we still don't have world peace, at, uh, at least our entertainment seems to have improved a bit since then, at least uh, according to my taste. Now, while I would like to mention a few other things right now, I feel that I'd better just uh, bring today's program to an end. For some reason, it's been difficult to get this podcast out to you. I had it all put together and edited a week ago, but uh, then due to some commotion here in the salon, I accidentally deleted the file. Overwrote it, actually. <laughs> and uh, by the time I discovered my mistake, it was uh, way too late to recover it. So this podcast has already taken me almost twice as long to produce as normal, and uh, I'd better not press my luck with any more talk and uh, just get back to daydreaming about pitching my tent in uh, Kevin and Kadoma's backyard tonight. Uh, don't worry, Kevin, I won't be there, but uh, I will in my dreams. So that's going to do it for now, and uh, I'll close today's podcast again by reminding you that this and all of the podcasts from the Psychedelic Salon are freely available for you to use in your own audio projects under the Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial Sharealike 3.0 license. And if you have any questions about that, just uh, click the Creative Commons link at the bottom of the Psychedelic Salon webpage, which you can find at psychedelicsalon.org. And if you are interested in some of the philosophy behind the Psychedelic Salon, you can hear all about it in my novel, The Genesis Generation, which is available as an audiobook that you can download at genesisgeneration.us. And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.